Our scripture lesson today is taken from Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Hear now the word of God. Besides this, you know what time it is. How it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone. The day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. It was said of Dante, he uses language to discover the world anew. May the language of your word in this service, both spoken in sermon and visible in the Lord's Supper, lead us to discover anew the world you have created and redeemed for us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Though the Bible is not a fashion magazine, clothing plays an important role throughout its pages. After the fall, the first man and first woman realize that they are naked, and they sew fig leaves together and make loincloths for themselves. A few verses later, the narrator says that God makes garments of skins and clothes them. In this early part of the Bible, the clothing we wear, the privacy it provides, the shame it seeks to address, are all presented as having both human origin and divine sanction. As the generations pass from Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, to Jacob and his wives... Jacob's son, Joseph, receives a coat of many colors from his father, a symbol of his favored status as the oldest son of Rachel, the wife Jacob loved. Yet the coat of many colors becomes a source of jealousy and resentment on the part of Joseph's brothers. They throw him into a pit and sell him into slavery in Egypt which is how the people of Israel land in the condition in which they would remain for 400 years until Moses liberated them to freedom. It all grows out of an article of clothing. And in one of the most heroic stories in the Old Testament, Queen Esther dons her royal robe, appears before her husband, King Aharius, and risks her life in demanding that he reverse an edict of death he has signed toward the Jews. Wearing the royal robe, Esther saves her people from genocide. When we arrive at the New Testament, the concern for clothing continues. When John the Baptist appears in the wilderness, much attention is paid to his attire, camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. 
When Jesus sends his disciples out, he tells them to take no gold or copper or silver in their belts. No bags for their journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. In his most memorable teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give him your cloak as well. And as Jesus faces trial, a young man flees into the shadows and loses his linen cloth in the process. Soldiers stationed at the foot of the cross gamble for the garments of Jesus. And when Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome arrive at the tomb in which the body of Jesus has been placed, they see a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side of the tomb. Dressed in white, it is this young man who announces he is not here. He is risen. Perhaps he is the young man robe restored who had fled into the shadows. These biblical references to clothing are intriguing. They are significant. They are often metaphorical. I could go on for the next half hour with many other examples, but I've sliced and sliced and sliced the sermon to be a respectable length. (laughs) In one of our passages for this first Sunday in Advent, The Apostle Paul uses clothing as a metaphor for being ready to act. Our passage comes near the end of the letter to the Romans, which Paul wrote as the culmination of his ministry. The letter contains the longest and most theologically dense argument in the Bible. It is Paul's magnum opus. It covers the human need for redemption, the way God addresses that need and rectifies the fallen world through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the way Paul's former kinspeople, the people of Israel, fit into that redemption and rectification. Nearly every major theologian and church leader from Augustine to Martin Luther to Karl Barth have spent years poring over Paul's sophisticated argument. Their use of this challenging book has led to major turns in the history of Christianity and indeed in world history. But in the last third of the letter, Paul sets aside the dense, heavy theological character of his argument. And he focuses on what we as human beings and as followers of Jesus Christ are to do as we live in this protracted moment between the resurrection of Christ in victory and the yet-to-be-enacted return of Christ in glory. Every Christian since the first Easter morning lives in this protracted moment. W.H. Auden called this time between resurrection and return the most trying time of all. For though we are raised to believe that Christ has overcome the world in the resurrection, our experience tells us with Ecclesiastes 
that what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. We trust that what we have here and now is redeemed, but we also know that what we have here and now cannot possibly be God's final intention for all of redeemed humanity. The suffering and tragedy in our world and our lives are too constant and too overwhelming. Thus, all we can do is await God's ultimate will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we do not control the shape or the timing of that will. Hence, we wait. Advent waiting. In this intermittent time, like his Old Testament predecessors, Paul turns to a metaphor of clothing. The simple act of getting dressed to call us to focus on what we face each day this side of our ultimate redemption, of what we face unfolding before us in the world and in our world. Paul calls us to dress and act in ways faithful to our commitment as Christians and appropriate to the time in which we live. You know what time it is, Paul writes, how it is now, the moment, for you to wake up from your sleep. Paul is more robust in his hopefulness than sometimes we are wont to be. For salvation is nearer to us now, he says, than when we first became believers. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on, get dressed in the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Paul is saying that even though we don't know everything that the day or the week or even this era of human history will bring, we are still to wake up, to get out of bed, and in the simple act of getting dressed, Face the day and the time with the wardrobe of our faith. You can do it, Paul says. You can do it. Many years ago, I heard the Reverend Jeremiah Wright preach to his congregation on the south side of Chicago. And in this particular sermon, he reminded them that the Lord God had opened the eyes of each of them that morning when the eyes of many people around the world had not been opened. That the Lord had allowed them to get dressed when so many other people had no clothing to wear. That the Lord had allowed them to eat a hearty breakfast when so many people had no home, no shelter, no food in which to enjoy breakfast, and that the Lord had allowed them to travel to the sanctuary on foot, by car, by bus, by public transport, the sanctuary in which they sit and pray 
stand and sing when so many others lack any kind of transport or mobility. Every morning when we awaken, Paul says, we are awakened for a reason. And that in and of itself is encouragement. The reason may be as clear to us as the child we hold in our arms and present for baptism. Or it may be as muddled as the quarreling and jealousy in our work or family within and among nations of our world. That we must address as we begin each day. As individuals, as God's people, as the human race. But Paul reminds us that despite the limits of our clarity, we are to dress for the duties, the challenges, the battles, the uncertainties, the complexities, the unpleasantries, and the celebrations that await us. The simple act of getting dressed is a commitment to live each day, to face each situation with the spirit of Christ and with the action that flows from that spirit. Ever wise beyond any one sentence that Paul writes, Paul does not tell us what to wear in this passage other than to say, put on the armor of light. Now I want us to think about this for a minute. Light and armor don't necessarily belong in the same sentence. And they hardly belong in the same metaphor. Light implies hope, beauty, illumination, insight, and knowledge. We benefit from light, but we cannot hear it, taste it, touch it, or smell it. It has no solidity to our senses. Armor, on the other hand, is solid as steel. It implies self-defense or aggression, force, or at least the threat of force. Is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ the armor of light putting on a contradiction? This tension, this seeming contradiction appears in other letters that Paul or people close to him wrote. A writer who likely followed Paul's tutelage expanded the imagery of getting dressed in the letter of the Ephesians. This writer gravitated gravitated also to the image of armor. Take up the whole armor of God, this writer says, so that you may be able to stand firm. This writer then moved from a generalized term armor to describe an entire military wardrobe the belt of truth around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. This language is quite severe. It is quite warlike. It can drag us down to think of it in the context of faith, in the context of God's love. And yet it shows that sometimes when we awaken in the morning and get dressed, what we face is evil, is powerful, is destructive. 
Sometimes the best we can do is to stand our ground against forces that are greater than us. Sometimes in a fallen world, we have to be dressed for battle. Yet another writer, also following Paul, writes to the Colossians of peaceful attire. As God's chosen one, this writer says, holy and beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Likewise, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul himself writes, Let us put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope for salvation. Again, these are all mixed metaphors involving what to wear in differing situations, what to wear based on what the day brings. In the wisdom of these metaphors, Paul may be saying that some days we must be dressed for battle and defense, while other days for peacemaking. In some situation, we We must be poised to protect ourselves and others. Other situations call us to give of ourselves in total, unending trust. So what exactly are we to wear? Are we to wear armor or are we to wear light? I'd like to venture this. Paul's only hint as an answer comes when he says, let us live honorably as in the day. Whether our action on a particular day involves armor or light, battle or peacemaking, it must be such that at the right time our actions can bear the light of day. If we are willing to let our action be seen, or at the right time, if we are willing to let our action be known, then our action is likely honorable. Let us live honorably as in the day as in the daylight. So whether the clothing we wear be of light or armor, we must be willing to say at the right time, yes, I did that for these reasons. Yes, I own up to that decision. If we can say that, it is likely that our simple act of getting dressed has honored God. Amen.